Allah Billah and Shaitan Rahim. In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful. And may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad. Brothers, sisters, and dear respected viewers, Assalamu alaikum jamian wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And thank you once again for joining us in this, inshallah, useful and important series as we go through the important elements and milestones that make up the last pillar of our belief system, the afterlife and the topics related to the afterlife. The uh, conversation that we had last time that we met, inshallah, was clear enough, as we said, uh, it constitutes a little bit of a, a transition point or a bridge between everything that we presented and the next topics that we want to engage in. And all of these topics are related one way or another to uh, kind of another sub-theme that we want to get into. And this one is uh, the sub-theme of trying to really understand the relationship between this life and the next life. So as we said, we need to look at this from different angles, but inshallah, at the end of this, we're going to be, we would have provided answers to a lot of the questions that I think a lot of people have with regards to the afterlife. That includes things like, you know, if someone does a lot of good things, but they don't believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or any religion, for instance, what does that mean? Uh, or someone who believes in all the right things, but uh, at the level of action, perhaps there's a lot of sins. So what does that mean? And uh, how can a life that is so finite, so limited in time, translate into something so unending or eternal? So we were saying that Inshallah, we're about to enter into the next sub-theme related to this topic. This is a sub-theme that, Inshallah, we, through which we will understand the relationship between this world and the next world, the relationship between faith in this world and the next world, actions in this world and that next world. So how do faith and action translate into a reward or a punishment? What is the relationship between faith and action and uh, through all of this inshallah we will have a much better appreciation of the relationship between this life and the next life so without further ado and so that the uh, the lecture part does not last uh, too long uh, let's jump into the topic, and inshallah this time, without too many introductions and too many recaps. The topic that we want to start talking about can be split into different ways. Uh, perhaps an easier way to get into it is to look at some of the misconceptions related to this topic. So, it's a little bit of a build-up on what we ended with last time we met. So, the last time we met, we talked about the choice between the two worlds, the two types of existence. If you have to prioritize, which one would you prioritize based on reason? That's where we ended. What we want to do now is to look at 
perhaps a misconception as we move into the afterlife. The misconception is what? A lot of people, when they look at the manner in which we live in this world, they assume, because they haven't studied religion or understood the nuances of belief as we're presenting them, consciously or unconsciously, they might think that the merits, the worth, the benefits that you enjoy in this world translate into merits and benefits and things to enjoy in the afterlife. And on the other side, these, these basically break into two misconceptions. One of them is thinking that if you have merits, if you have benefits, if you have things that you enjoy in this world, we're going to get into the details, it means that you will also have them in the afterlife. That's a simple version of that misconception. The other one is the opposite, which is thinking that if you enjoy some things in this world, you are necessarily going to be punished for that enjoyment in the afterlife. Okay, so we're going to understand the source of that misconception, so inshallah for ourselves, we don't fall into basically that incorrect worldview and incorrect understanding of the relationship between this life and the next. And also if you know we're confronted with these situations, we, we can explain it to others. So we want to start by first understanding, generally speaking, as we said, the relationship between this world and the next. This is going to become kind of our compass. Everything that we're going to say in this lesson and the next lessons is going to be built on this image, on this example, allegory, parable, whatever you want to call it. And based on that, everything else is going to derive out of it. But we're going to start looking at these issues one by one. But once this image is understood, it already solves a lot of the misconceptions that may arise. So this is the idea that this world is like a garden. And we are spending our times gardening for ourselves, planting seeds, and we can harvest the fruits of, our, of those seeds in the afterlife. That's the image. So we're going to get into a little bit more detail there, but that's the idea. Once this is understood, we want to look at two misconceptions. Those who enjoy a very good life here does it necessarily mean that they're going to enjoy a very good life in the afterlife? And why do we talk about this? Where does this misconception come from? The second one is those who think that if you enjoy anything in this world, you're necessarily going to be punished for those enjoyments in the afterlife. Therefore, you have to live a life of abstinence and away from any type of enjoyment because all of this will turn into punishment or you know, and being deprived of things in the afterlife because this world you're not supposed to enjoy anything. Okay, so we'll understand these are two extreme positions stemming from the same root cause, which is a misunderstanding of the relationship between this world and the next and the things that exist in this world. How are they to be perceived by someone who believes? Why are they there? Why are there things that we can enjoy in this world? And then finally, we'll try to conclude in a, in a practical way. The image of this world as a garden is not something we may hear it here and there. I think a lot of people use it. 
we may think that someone just made that up and people think it's a, it's a good, nice image, so they keep replicating that image and repeating it. This is actually an image that comes directly from our religion. We find this image again and again presented in the Holy Quran itself, and we find it a lot in the narrations of the Holy Prophet and the Imams as well. So we know that there is a point to this. It's not just someone who created a nice example, parable, story, and they said just keep using it and people do that. This is something that comes from our religion. Are there others? There's a lot of other uh, images that have been presented to us to explain the relationship between this life and the next, including, for instance, the relationship of uh, someone who is in, like, in a marketplace and there's a transaction being made. And we read some verses in the Quran that talk about this. It's as though you're selling something and buying something in return. So what are you selling? And what are you buying in return? And is this a winning, a good bargain transaction? Or is it a, 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 a horrible transaction where you're basically selling your afterlife for the limited pleasures of this world, for instance? That's an image. Uh, and as we said, there's a number of other images. And I think uh, we may mention a couple of them later. There are a number of images, but there is certainly one, as we said, that comes back again and again. So what is it? It's this image that everything that we do, let's flip it, everything that happens in the afterlife is entirely and absolutely dependent on what we put in in this world. That's the relationship of the afterlife to this world. There is nothing else in the afterlife except what we have put in. And inshallah, this is well understood. It may seem trivial, but we're going to be building on that in the next uh, lectures too. So this is an important point to keep in mind. There is nothing else in the afterlife except what you are planting, putting in place for yourself in this world. So the image is the image of a garden. When you enter into this world, this world is your garden. If you decide to toil it, to toil the ground, to prepare it, and to plant seeds of a certain kind, then you are going to be the one who reaps the benefits and gets the harvest of those seeds at the end. And if you decide to put different kinds of seeds in, then you are stuck with those seeds. And if you decide to waste your time and do nothing with your garden, that's what you have prepared for yourself later on too. And the, you can keep thinking about this image, but the, the, the simple, the simplified, reduced version of that image is as simple as that. The world is a garden, and your job is to plant the seeds, but you can't harvest anything right now. This is a world where you have a limited amount of time, limited opportunities, and it's up to you to use them to your best advantage, because later on, you are going to be stuck only with the things that you put in in this ground, in the time that you had, in the opportunities that you had. The relationship between this world and the next is therefore the relationship. This world is a garden in which you plant seeds here and you harvest the fruits of whatever you planted in the afterlife. That's the image. And as we said, this is an image that is repeatedly used in the whole Quran itself. For instance, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in 1836, nor do I deem the hour will ever come, and if I am indeed sent back to my Lord, I will surely find there a better resort for myself. 
What is the point of this verse? This is in Surah Al-Kahf. There's a whole story behind this verse. This is where we get into the misconceptions that may arise. You have two men, each of them having a garden. And then one of them finds himself having a much better, nicer, more beautiful garden than the other. And at some point, this wealth and this luxury and this comfort and you know whatever he sees in his garden gets to him. It gets to his head and it creates an air of arrogance, a feeling of superiority over his friend who has a more modest garden. And so slowly his friend starts to try to remind him of the things that really matter and that all of this is in the hands of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala not to become cocky and arrogant and feeling superior just because your garden is now suddenly more you know luscious and nicer and so on and so forth and of course this applies to anything this is an image and in the end this was one of the answers that he gave he says nor do I deem that the hour will ever come so he starts completely forgetting about something called the afterlife. His entire preoccupation is about this world, the hour being the Qiyamah, Judgment Day. So now he says, and this is something you can start seeing even if the person does not say it with their words, you can see that in their actions. Do they behave in a way, do we behave in a way as though there is an afterlife or not? Do we behave in a way that as though the only thing that is of a concern to us is this world? or not. This is certainly how this person was behaving. And then he adds, and if I am indeed sent back to my Lord, if ever there is something like an afterlife, then what? I will surely find there a better resort for myself. If I am someone who was able to reach this kind of good and benefit and enjoyment in this world, then one of two things. Either it's because I deserve this, and so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala recognizes my worth and what I deserve, and therefore He gives it to me. And if I deserve it here, then I will surely deserve it in the afterlife as well. That's what. The other version, the other side of this, is that it's not because I deserve. It's because I'm someone who worked hard for this. I found a way to make all of this happen for myself. And if I was able to do it in this world, I will also be able to do it in the afterlife. And this stems from what? It stems from a misunderstanding of what the afterlife is. So if we understand the image of the human being being stuck with whatever they planted in their garden, you don't fall into these misconceptions. But if without those, you know, without understanding the sandbox, as they say, without understanding these general guidelines, you may fall into this type of misconception. You think that because you were able to get things in this world through your networks and the people you know and the hard work you put in and the connections and trickery and cheating and lying and your hard work and so on and so forth, then therefore you are also able to replicate that in the afterlife. Or, as we said, the other version of it is, I think that I have some sort of intrinsic value. That God recognizes what is due to me. I, it's something that is owned to me, and Allah subhanahu wa will give, recognize that and give me what is mine, what is duly mine, in 
this world and therefore in the next world as well. Okay? So this is the source of this misconception. And uh, what also happens here is that, as we have said, this translates into um, this translates into other types. We see that in even previous uh, generations, previous civilizations, they fell into the same issues. In in uh, the following verses, Allah Subhanahu wa Taala says, "The human never wearies of supplicating for good. He never gets tired of asking Allah Subhanahu wa Taala to give him good things, more things to enjoy, more benefits, and so on and so forth." And should any ill befall him, as soon as there's some sort of hardship, he becomes hopeless, despondent, very quickly. And if we let him have a taste of our mercy after distress, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, okay, so he had a hardship, he asked for the hardship to be removed, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala removes that hardship. And if we let him have a taste of our mercy after distress has befallen him, he will surely say, this is my due. He thinks that this was owed to him. If Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala removed that difficulty or that hardship, it's almost only because this is the type of good person that he is and he deserved for that hardship to be removed. He deserved for the good things to come his way. He intrinsically is owed these things. These things are due to him. Okay, And this, of course, is a form of arrogance. This is a form of feeling superior. This is where this stems from. This is my due. And of course, with this type of thinking, there is always a doubt, or in fact, a complete rejection of the afterlife. I do not think that the hour will ever set, and in case I am returned to my Lord, I will indeed have the best reward with him. So it's kind of a hopeful, wishful thinking that I am someone who deserves good things just because. If I got them in this world, I will also get them in the afterlife. I don't even think there is an afterlife. But if there is one, then if I got good things in this world, I will also get them in the afterlife. I will indeed have the best reward with him, but we will surely inform the faithless about what they have done and will surely make them taste a harsh punishment. So, The misconception comes from where? First of all, there's a misconception about the nature of the afterlife. If you think that the afterlife is a world where you can still act, you can still voluntarily decide to do things that have another uh, effect, good or bad, and we talked about this in the past, we're building on it now, then you may also think that you are going into a world where you can still act and you can still do things that will bring you those benefits, that will bring you those things that you can enjoy. When, in fact, the afterlife does not offer any possibility of doing anything to attract good or push back harm. The only opportunity you have is in this world. What happens in the afterlife is just a consequence of this. You're stuck with it. And we'll see how the Holy Quran is going to say you're, you're held hostage to whatever you put in here. That's it. You, whatever you decided to plant, that you're going to be held hostage to it. You're chained to it. And of course, as we said, this also stems from the idea that if I have a favor in this world, I will also have a favor in the 
next world. There's, and we said there's two reasons, two ways to view this. Either because I think I got to all of this through my effort and I can replicate, I can repeat this, or because this is due to me internally and intrinsically, because of who I am and how good and you know beautiful and great I am. And I, as we said, this is stemming from a type of arrogance and superiority. And finally, as we said, this is because a misunderstanding of the relationship between the two worlds. If you think that this is a world, you're going to live in this world, and then you're going to die, and then you're going to be recreated in another type of world, where you also have another life like this one, just a completely different world. So basically you're living again, and some people who believe in reincarnation, for instance, that's their idea of an afterlife. So there is a life, and then there's something that happens after death. So you are brought back to a life, but a life where you can still get to act and choose, and it's based on your voluntary actions, and you can decide what to do, and therefore you can improve your state, you can improve your fate by acting in a certain way or not. And as we keep repeating, this is absolutely not the nature of the afterlife. Okay? So, and this is, of course, very quickly, this is a reminder of why we said from the beginning of this entire series, it's not enough to just believe that there's an afterlife. It's not enough to believe that there is something after death. You have to have a little bit of a detailed understanding what type of afterlife is it? What type of world are you going into? If you don't get into those details, you may end up with those types of misconceptions. And as we said, yes, there is a, there are other metaphors, of course. There's a, the metaphor of the garden and the field. There's a metaphor of the very long journey on which we're going to go, and so on and so forth. So we leave that aside. And as we said, the Holy Quran here says, that's one of the verses, and there are others. It says, each individual shall be held in pledge for that which he has earned. In other words, you're stuck as a hostage to what you have earned. In other words, the actions that you have put in. That's it. There's not, nothing else. There is no trickery. There is no effort. There is nothing that can save you except your actions or what you have planted in this world. Now, the misconception. Now that that, that image is clear, and we said we're going to be building on that image for the next lectures. So that one, inshallah, is clear. I think it's something you've all heard before. The first version of this misconception, as we saw from the verses, is that you think that the favors, whatever those favors may be, you think you have children, you have possessions, you have wealth, you have your reputation, you're a king, you're a businessman, you're whatever it is, those things can be replicated in the afterlife because somehow, and sometimes this is unconscious, you think you have greatness in this world, therefore you will also have greatness in the afterlife. If you read the verses of the Holy Qur'an and combine them, you can certainly do a lot there, if you combine them with a bit of history, go back to the customs, the traditions, for instance, of people like the ancient Egyptians. And this existed in all the civilizations of humanity. You see that there is an insistence of going through certain burial rites, burial rituals, for instance, when that a pharaoh dies, or some places a king dies, or whatever great uh, personality there is, when they die, they take great care 
and making sure that through the rites that they perform, through what types of artifacts they leave with this person, they are preparing them for the next world, but not only preparing them, announcing to the next world who this person was in this life. So that when this Fir'aun dies and goes to the afterlife, they recognize him right away in the afterlife as having been a Fir'aun. This is no regular, ordinary person. And so they add all the gold and all the treasures and all sorts of other artifacts to clearly tell them, deal with this person as someone very special. This is who this person was. So that when you go there, you are dealt with in that special way. In your mind, this is a way of recognizing your worth and your greatness. Okay? So, if you go, this is a misconception. If you go through the verses of the Quran, regarding this misconception, you see that it completely goes against this idea. That because you had any sort of greatness or bounties or things that you enjoyed in this world, it necessarily means you will have anything in the afterlife. That's not how it works. So the Holy Quran says, and we're going to get into the verses that talk about this. First of all, the things in themselves are insignificant. They don't have intrinsic value in themselves. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives you things, the things in themselves don't have merit. Therefore, you can't translate having something as you having merit and having value and feeling superior and feeling arrogant. The things in themselves are worthless. Okay, so that's one. Two, and we're going to talk about that. When do they acquire value? Okay, where does the value of things come from in this life? We talked about the second point, so they do not necessarily mean that there is a favor in the afterlife. In fact, there is no favor in this world either. Okay, but that's the world we live in. People give value to material things, so they may favor it. But in itself, it doesn't hold any value. That's one. The next point is that even if you have things in this world, your ties to anything that you own in this world are going to be cut off. And this is also going to apply to your personal blood relations, for instance, your family relations. The Holy Quran says all of this is going to be cut off. And then some of it is going to be given back to you. And we'll see why. There's a condition. If you meet that condition, which is, as we said, if you gave value to those things as you should have, then that relationship can remain in the afterlife. If you didn't, then it falls into, by default, being a relationship that is not built on truth. Therefore, it's insignificant. There is no relationship there. Me owning things, things don't have value in themselves. Having money, having networks, having relationships, having people, family, all of that is going to be cut off from us in the afterlife. And we talked about this, so we don't need to explain it further. I think it's clear. This was the whole idea of that world being a world of truth, where only your relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to be clear and there. And if you had relationships with anything else because of your relationship with God, then that is going to be a relationship that carries truth, carries meaning, signifies anything. Everything else will be cut off. And that includes people, that includes things, and so on and so forth. The rest I think we covered, so we can move to the next point. There's, this we can go very quickly over this one, is that 
Sometimes people, you know, want to take a, a verse like this one and they say, you know, things in this world is, are going to be translated into the same thing in the afterlife. For instance, if someone, the verse says, 1772, if someone was blind, whoever was blind in this world, they will be blind in the hereafter and most astray from the path. Well, of course, yes, it does say that, but the meaning here has 100% entirely to do with the point that we made, which is, is your relationship with the things based on truth or not? And the blindness here has nothing to do with physical blindness. It's not because you are physically blind or not, or whatever other defect a human being may have or may get throughout their lives, that this is necessarily going to be replicated in the afterlife. Not at all. It has nothing to do with this. And we talked enough about the soul and our identity being the soul and so on and so forth that I don't think we need to explain, spend too much time on this. But even this is clearly explained in the Holy Quran itself. When it talks about blindness, it explains this blindness and how it translates into blindness of the afterlife in the Quran itself. It explains this without us having to add any more commentary to it. So for instance, in one verse it says, For truly it is not the eyes that grow blind, but rather it is the hearts that grow blind. And in two other verses, uh, uh, chapter 20, it says, but whosoever turns away from my remembrance, so if you choose to turn away from the things that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala keeps sending you to remind you to go back to him, surely for him is a miserable life and we shall raise him up blind on the day of judgment. And that person will say, he shall say, oh my Lord, why have you raised me up blind while I was seeing? So therefore, if the first verse was saying, if you are blind, then you will be raised blind. Here the verse is saying, the person is raised blind, but they say, I was seeing, because this person is referring to the physical ability to see. So clearly the verse 1772 has nothing to do with your physical ability to see. Okay, so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says this person is going to be asking, Oh my Lord, why have you raised me up blind while I was a seeing one? And the answer will come, Thus did you, when our signs came to you, ignore them. So will you on this day be ignored. This was how you handled the truth, and this is a day of truth, so truths come back as they truly are. And as they truly are, inshallah, we're going to explain what we mean by that in next lessons, inshallah. And so, again, the attitudes towards the signs is the reason for your blindness. So, again, the relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala becomes the main criteria for things to have value and what type of value. Anyways, so now let's go through some verses of the Quran that talk about this whole relationship with things given to us in this world. And so that Al-Fajr, as for the human, whenever his Lord tests him and grants him honor and blesses him, he says, my Lord has honored me. But when he tests him and tightens for him his provision, holds back his provision, he says, my Lord has humiliated me. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala here is saying, the human being fails to understand that the things that were giving him and the things we're taking away from him are not because we are honoring him or because we are humiliating him. But the human being, obviously, this verse is saying, this is how the human being views things. So anyone who views things as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives me money, gives me children, gives me a good job, a good house, a good wife, whatever I want, I'm getting. Therefore, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala likes me and honors me. This verse is clearly saying, no, that's not why. This is the test. 
everything that you're getting is the test. And then suddenly you lose those things. Or you're going after things and you can't get them and it's very difficult and you keep thinking, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not like me. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is humiliating me. He's punishing me. And this verse is saying, no, that's the test. It's not because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to humiliate you or honor you. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is making you go through this because this is your test in life. You get, that's the test, and you lose, that's also the test. That's it. And so this applies to everything else. So this is to answer to the misconception. If I have something, I will also have something. It's because I have some internal worth, an internal merit that Allah recognizes and rewards. And No, that's not how this world works. This world is not a world where this internal merit is recognized. Some of your best people lived lives of misery and difficulty and hardship, and some of the worst people lived lives of luxury and comfort. That's not an indication of anything. In Surah Al-Zukhruf, it is they, is it they who dispense the mercy of your Lord? Anyone who thinks like that, it's almost as though they are imposing on God how God distributes His bounties. They're imposing on God a principle that God, so-and-so, because they are good, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives them those things, and because they are bad, God removes. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, don't make up rules that you impose on God. Is it they who dispense the mercy of your Lord? It is we who have dispensed among them their livelihood in the present life. And inshallah, we're going to come back to that. And raised some of them above others in rank, so that some of them may take others into service. And your Lord's mercy is better than what they amass. And this is a, a verse that can, we can have a lot of lectures just on this verse. This is a, a very deep verse that basically explains to us the manner in which this world of ours, the social life between human beings, has been engineered by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that some people have some things, other people don't have those things, they have other things. And this forces people to have to use each other, to come into service. No one is completely independent of the others. No one can have it all and live on their own. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says this is part of the social philosophy for humanity. If you have more or you have less, this is the second answer. We're, we're, we're looking at different answers. One answer is because this is the type of world Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wanted. So at some point you will have and at some point you will not have. And you may be the same person who has some things and you don't have other things. And sometimes that thing that you had will be taken. And this is part of why you have to live in a society where you have to be dependent on others and others are dependent on you. Okay? Sukhriya. sometimes we may think it's, it's ridicule. No. Sukhriya is tashkhir. Sikhriya would be ridicule. But the Quran says Sukhriya. Sukhriya means so that you come into use by others. So that you are used. Tasheer is, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uses a lot. He made you able to use those things. He makes you, he created the world in this way, where some have more and some have less, and some lose what they have, and some gain what they don't have, so that people keep using and come into the service of each other. Okay, that's what we said. There's a whole philosophy, social philosophy here, that we can't get into right now. So again, this contradicts the notion that I have because I deserve. No, it's not because you deserve or you don't deserve. The next verse in Surah Al-Imran, uh, as for the faithless, neither their wealth 
nor their children shall avail them anything against Allah. It is they who will be fuel for the fire. So here there's a clear cutting off, cutting of the ties, relationships of family and any other type of wealth and ties of this world don't mean anything. In Surah Luqman, O humankind, be wary of your Lord and fear the day when a father shall not atone for his child, nor the child shall atone for his father in any way. Indeed, Allah's promise is true, so do not let the life of the world deceive you, nor let the deceiver deceive you concerning Allah. This one is clear too. The day neither wealth nor children will be of any benefit. Okay, so this is all to repeat the same message. Surah Al-Mu'minun, and when the trumpet is blown, you see, this is a change of the type of world it is. There will be no ties between them on that day. All the ties that exist in this world are cut off. Nor will they ask about each other. In Surah Sabah, it is not your wealth or your children that will bring you near us in proximity. And this is where like, this verse is addressing this issue directly. This is not what gives you worth. This is not what gives you value that you have wealth or you have children or that you've been given things from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Except those, uh, so there is an exception, there is a condition. Those things can bring closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, except those who believe and do righteousness. So if you use those things in the service of Allah, then suddenly your wealth and your children become things that have value, recognized by Allah, and He will preserve it in the afterlife. And we'll see that soon. Theirs, those people who believe and do righteousness, theirs is a manifold reward, an amplified, multiplied reward for what they did, and they will be secure in lofty chambers. Certainly you have become, you have come to us alone. So this is the idea that there are no ties, just as we created you the first time, and left behind whatever we had bestowed on you. We do not see your intercessors with you, those whom you claimed to be our partners in deciding your fate, Certainly all links between you have been cut and what you used to claim has forsaken you. Okay, and then the last verse, Surah Al-Mu'minun, do they suppose that whatever we provide them in regard to wealth and children is because we are eager to bring them good? And there are people who used to say that to the Prophet. If it's true that there is a God and if it's true that everything you're saying is as it is, then how come we have children and we have wealth and we have power and here you are with those who have nothing fighting us. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but this applies to everyone, including us. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, this serves as a warning. Imam Ali alayhi salam has scary sayings related to this and we have them from all of our Imams, but the Imam says, this is what you should fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala the most. When you know that you are sinning and you know that Allah keeps bestowing blessings upon you. Then you should remember a verse like this one. Do they suppose that whatever we provide them in regard to wealth and children is because we are eager for them to bring them good? Rather, they are not aware. So this is all going to be used against you. We keep giving you and you keep using it against in the wrong way, in the opposite direction of how you're supposed to be using it. In other words, we're just giving you fuel and you keep sinning with it. That's what it means. And then we said on the other side, does it mean that absolutely no relationship is good and that we should ignore everything and leave our families and leave our belongings and, and, and? We all already saw that. No, no, that's not what the verses are saying. And we have other ones. Look at this amazing verse in Surah Al-Ghafir. In the beginning, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala 
is talking about the angels who carry his throne. Okay, and we can't get into the details, inshallah, one day we can get into the tafsir, the commentary of these verses and the description of these angels. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, those specific angels who are carrying the throne, let's look how they pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and what they ask for when they pray. Those who bear the throne and those around it celebrate the praise of their Lord and have faith in Him. And they plead for forgiveness for the faithful. Our Lord, this is now them talking, asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, our Lord, you comprehend all things in mercy and knowledge. So forgive those who repent and follow your way and save them from the punishment of hell. So now you know that if you are of those who, when you perform a sin, you ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to forgive you and you repent to Allah, you know who is praying for you. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying, the angels who carry his throne are praying for the believers who repent. When do you repent? Those are the believers who have sinned. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, those angels pray for them. And they say, and save them from the punishment of hell. Our Lord, admit them into the gardens of Eden, which you have promised them. But it doesn't stop there. And it adds, along with whoever is righteous among their forebears, their parents, their ancestors, their spouses, their descendants, indeed you are the Almighty, the All-Wise. So if you feel, if you see a verse like this, can you still say that there's absolutely no family relationships in the afterlife? No. This is in fact exactly what these angels are praying for, that those relationships remain, but they only remain if they were built on truth. If you are someone who did things, and because of the things that you did in this life, three generations down the line, people are still worshipping God because of what you did in your life, rest assured that there is a direct line between you and them that will be preserved in the afterlife. And the opposite. It's sometimes the down the generations that someone is going to intercede. They were so good that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allows them to intercede. He gives them shafa'ah not only for their immediate families, but even their ancestors and their descendants. And inshallah, we'll talk about that more when we talk about intercession. We have this same idea in other verses. The faithful and their descendants who followed them in faith, we will make, the, we will make their descendants join them. And we will not stint anything from the reward of their deeds. Every man is a hostage to what he has earned. Okay? And so there's no responsibility carried by anyone else except you. But then, if those relationships were good, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala preserves them for you in the afterlife. And then Surah Al-Baqarah, among the people, there are those who say, Our Lord, give us in this world. But they have no share in the afterlife. And this one is very clear. If the misconception is that you think because you have in this world, you will have in the afterlife, then this, again, is another verse that refutes that directly. Okay? Now, this is one misconception, inshallah, it's clear with all the verses that we saw. The other one, as we said, is perhaps a little bit more tricky, but still very clear too, inshallah, and in that you think the opposite. We said there are people out of their arrogance, out of their air of superiority, whatever it may be, they think that because they have something, it's because of they deserve it. 
and whatever they have here or their misconceived notions of how the afterlife works. If there's something good, it will translate into something good in the afterlife. And then you have the opposite side, which is there are those who say, if there's anything good that you are enjoying in this world, it will necessarily mean that you will, you will be deprived of happiness, of bliss in the afterlife. And so the only way to live in this world is to live a world of deprivation, of abstinence. You must avoid anything that is enjoyable. To the extent that you enjoy things in this world, you are not going to enjoy things in the afterlife. Okay? So, of course, on the other side, they say, that's if you enjoy, you don't enjoy. And if you can deprive yourself of things in this world, then you will get to enjoy them in the afterlife. That's the equation in their minds. So, unfortunately, this is, in a lot of cases, and we find this in a lot of religions, it's not limited to Islam. In a lot of cases, this is the, the stemming point, the beginning, the root cause of this, is a misunderstanding of scriptures, a misunderstanding of the teachings of the religions. This is where this stems from. And sometimes people from outside of religion also think that this is what religion means. That to the extent that you avoid things that are enjoyable and pleasurable in this life, then you believe that you will also be able to enjoy those things in the afterlife. That's what they think your religion says. Okay, so in, from both cases, those who are within religion sometimes misconceive in this way, and those who are outside think that this is what religion is teaching. And so this is one of the reasons why they want to avoid religion. They think religion says avoid anything that is pleasurable, enjoyable, that is good and benefit. Okay? So, of course, as we said, the issue, and I think we started touching on this, and inshallah we'll make it clear more and more, the issue is not whether you enjoy or don't enjoy things. And we'll see how the verses talk about this very clearly. The issue is, where are you putting your priorities? And where is God in those priorities? If Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is at front and center in your worldview, in your relationship with everything in the world, then when you use things in this world, when you enjoy things in this world, when you gain pleasure from anything in this world, your relationship is still within the relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If you don't, then you are looking at those things in themselves. They become ends in themselves. They become the objective. And that's when the problem happens. That's where the issue is. That's where you start worshipping. And we talked a little bit about this the last time we met. You start worshipping things other than Allah. Seeking those things truly as though they are ends in themselves, when all those things are supposed to be means to another end. So long as you keep that relationship, there is no issue in enjoying anything in the world. And there is a way to enjoy certain things. And Allah subhanahu wa has given those teachings within the teachings of religions. And then finally, if this were true, then we would have a huge problem explaining how the Holy Prophet at times, our Imams, and many other prophets lived their lives. They did not live a life 100% of the time of being deprived of anything and everything. Absolutely not. There were times when they would deprive themselves of things, and this is intentional. 
This is part of their discipline. This is part of them not caring about these worldly things. This is part of teaching others not to care about those things. But there are also times when they enjoy those things, whatever they may be. It could be food and drink and clothes and other pleasures of life. There is no issue in those things in themselves. And we're going to look at some verses of the Quran that directly talk about this. And we see that the issue is not that you are enjoying something pleasurable or something that people consider to be enjoyable and pleasurable. That's not the issue. The issue is where is God in your relationship with those things? Okay? In addition to this, there's another topic I think that here is where you see something very specific to our religion. And our religion clearly, if you go through the verses of the Holy Quran, if you go through the narrations of Bayt, the Holy Prophet, and the manner in which they lived, you can clearly see a whole theme about how you are supposed to enjoy the things of this world. And inshallah, as we said, inshallah, we'll dedicate a series about the relationship we're supposed to have with this world how to prioritize and how to handle ourselves in this world. What matters and how do we know that it matters and what type of priority do we give it? Okay, so that's, that's a big topic. But generally speaking, anyone who studies our religion, anyone who studies Islam, people don't need to believe in it. Anyone who studies it will tell you one thing very clearly and quickly. As soon as you read the Holy Quran and you read some narrations of the life of the Holy Prophet and his teachings, they will tell you that Islam seeks to establish a balanced way of living. So what they mean by that is that it's a very practical religion, a very practical set of teachings that tell you that there's a balance to be reached between the life of this world, building the life of this world, working for this world, and working for the afterlife. Islam does not tell you you only give priority to one at the expense of the other entirely. It tells you you have to find a way to do both. And this is, of course, in reaction to something that we will see soon, in reaction to how Christianity evolved and how they tried to... There was a renunciation. There was a pushing back on anything that would be considered a material or a pleasurable in something to enjoy, any enjoyment that is of the material world. Okay, and inshallah, we're going to talk about that in a second. So, if it is not, as we said before, that if you have anything good in this world, it necessarily means you have anything good in the afterlife. That's one. And if it is not that you have to avoid everything and anything that is enjoyable in this world, okay, then, then what? How are you to view the, the things that you can enjoy in this world? How are you to view anything that... It, seems to be given to you in this world from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So from the verses that we saw and the verses that we will see, the general principles is that anything in this world, first of all, is divinely managed. Allah administers, Allah decides who gets what. And we saw that in, clearly in some verses where it says, Are they the ones who are dispensing, dispersing the Mercy of your Lord. No, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala decides. End of story. That's one answer. Two, in addition to that, we said that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala specifically created this world as a system where human beings need each other. 
which means if anyone has anything fully, they will not need anyone else in that regard. So Allah says, no, I will make sure that everybody needs everybody for something. And this is how society works, and I want you to live in society. That's two. Thirdly, it is all part of the trial. The whole point of this world is that you go through this world having things and losing them. Wanting things and not having them. And seeing how do you react in those situations. Do you entirely and completely get fixated on the things of this world? Or can you look past them to something beyond? Which is the afterlife. You understand that this is like a game, like a test. And you're going through it. And depending on how you handle yourself, you get out of this test, of this exam, successfully or having failed. Where did you fixate? Where did you focus your eyes? Did you only look at the material things or were you able to see how those fit into the bigger picture, into the bigger test, into the bigger purpose of being here? Which brings us back to the idea of are you planting your garden? Okay? So the verses that have to do with this, first, the verses that may be misconceived, where verses, you read them and you tell yourself, oh, clearly Allah subhanahu wa says we're not allowed to enjoy anything in this world. These are verses that could be roots at the root of some misconceptions. For instance, Surah Shura, verse 20, whoever desires the tillage of the hereafter, so the tillage is, you know, once you, you harvest, right? So whoever desires the harvest or the tillage of the afterlife, we will enhance for him his tillage. So if you want the afterlife, we will not just give you what you worked for, we'll make it even better for you. We will enhance for him his tillage, and whoever desires the tillage of this world, we will give it to him, but he will have no share in the hereafter. Okay, so someone may misconceive, misunderstand this verse as saying, if you want anything in this world, it necessarily means you will have absolutely nothing in the afterlife. And who wants that? Okay, so they say, therefore, avoid anything in this life. Avoid desiring, wanting anything in this life. And Surah Al-Isra, whoever desires this transitory life, this passing life, we expedite for him in this life whatever we wish, for whomever we desire. So there's no guarantee that if you want this life, you'll get it. But there's a good likelihood that if you work and that's all you want, this life, we're probably going to give you a good chunk, a good portion of what you're trying to get in this life, what you're trying to achieve in this life. Okay? But, unfortunately, then we appoint hell for him to enter it, disgraced and rejected. That's if you're only focused on this life. So, of course, someone reads that and they say, Therefore, you are not allowed to want anything in this life because you don't want to end up in hell, as the verse says. The next verse in Surah Al-Ahqaf, the day when the faithless are exposed to the fire, they will be told, you have exhausted your good things in the life of the world and enjoyed them. We gave you things to enjoy, but you decided to use everything that you can enjoy in the life of this world. Therefore, so today you will be requited will be rewarded with a humiliated punishment for your acting arrogantly in the earth unduly and because you used to transgress. So the answer is within the verse, by the way. Okay? But this, these are types of verses that could be misconstrued, misunderstood by some 
who, who don't have this more general picture of how Islam views the relationship between the two worlds. So they think it means you're not allowed to enjoy anything. Therefore, the ideal situation would be to avoid anything and everything uh, that falls under the enjoyments of this world. And the answer, in Surah Al-A'raf, for instance, and there's a few verses, and we said we'll talk about all of this in depth, inshallah. Say, who has forbidden the adornment of Allah which he has brought forth for his servants and the good things of his provision? And we talked about this verse last time. Say they are for the believers and the life of this world and exclusively for them on the day of resurrection. Thus do we elaborate the signs for people who have knowledge. Very bottom line, very short, sweet answer that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, obviously, it's not forbidden. There is no issue with that in itself. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, and this is, this is again the answer, this is part of the answer. Know that your possessions and children are only a test. So long as you understand that they are a test, enjoy them. But know that they are a test. You will surely be tested in your possessions and your souls, as in life and death. Okay? So long as you know, then there is no issue. Surah Al-Kahf, indeed we have made whatever is on the earth an adornment for it, that we may test them to see which of them is best in conduct. It's not that you're not allowed to use just know that it is part of the test. Allah will not leave the faithful in your present state until he has separated the bad ones from the good. How? Through the test. When he puts the faithful through the test, there are some of them who will come out as clearly having true faith and some who will clearly become those who don't have a real faith because they went through the test. Without the test, it's cheap and easy for everybody to say, I'm faithful. Okay? The one who had knowledge of the book. This is where we get into the more specifics. Okay, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us of the, the man who was with uh, Prophet Sulaiman when Prophet Sulaiman wanted someone to bring the throne of the queen of Sabah. Uh, he asked who in his court could bring the entire throne of the queen of Sabah. And at first he had one of the greats of the jinn who told him, I will bring it to you before you get up from your seat, and then someone said this. So, of course, this is interesting and good, and we can talk about it, but the point is, we want to see how Prophet Sulaiman is justifying enjoying the things that he is enjoying in this world. And we're going to see a couple more verses about this. And this should close the deal, should answer, provide the final answer if someone says, you're not supposed to enjoy anything in this world. Let's look at Prophet Sulaiman and what he had as at his disposal. Okay? So the one who had knowledge of the book after the jinn said, I will bring it to you before you get up from your seat. The one who had knowledge of the book, which we are told he was either his nephew or someone who had that type of relationship with Prophet Sulaiman also in the Barkhia and the, the narrations, he told him and he had knowledge of the book, I will bring it to you in the twinkling of an eye. So when he saw it set near him, he said, this is by the grace of my Lord. Which obviously means that Sulaiman had an even greater ability than this man who brought this throne in front of him in the twinkling of an eye. Okay? Because he is the prophet and he is the king. And these are the people working under him. But he is enjoying all of these blessings, and what? how does he justify it? 
How does he explain that it's okay to use all of this? He says, this is by the grace of my Lord. That's what? Two, to test me if I will give thanks or be ungrateful. And there's another verse soon that will talk about being grateful. What does it mean? Is it just saying the words, I'm grateful? And whoever gives thanks, give thanks only for his own sake. And whoever is ungrateful should know that my Lord is indeed all-sufficient, all-generous. And then, and unto Suleiman, we made subservient the wind, whose morning course was a month, and whose evening course was a month. So when Sulaiman would order the wind or the cloud to go, they would go for a month, and then they would start coming back. That journey takes a month for the wind to do. This is Allah subhanahu wa is intentionally describing the power of Sulaiman what he had at his disposal. And unto Sulaiman, we made the, the subservient to the wind whose morning course was a month and whose evening course was a month. And we caused the fount of molten copper to flow for him. And of the jinn, some worked before him by the leave of his Lord, making for him whatsoever he desired, places of worship, statues, basins like reservoirs, cauldrons firmly anchored. Work, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells them, the family of Prophet Dawood and his son Sulaiman Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells them, work, O family, a family of David, in thankfulness. Though few of my servants are thankful. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, What? I'm giving you all of these things, but in return, I want your gratefulness. I want your thankfulness. And thankfulness is not words you say, it's work. Work, O family of Dawood, and thankfulness. You want to be thankful, use the things Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives you in the way He wants you to use them, in His service. And then you are thankful for the things you have. And that includes children, that includes wealth, that includes reputation, that includes knowledge, whatever you have. And thereupon we caused other of our messengers to follow in their footsteps. And in the course of time we caused them to be followed by Jesus, the son of Mary, upon whom we bestowed the gospel. And in the hearts of those who truly followed him, we engendered compassion and mercy. And then, this is where the whole Quran talks about those people who want to be abstaining from anything and everything of the luxuries and enjoyments of this world. What does it say of the followers of Jesus, Because it's talking about the prophets, and then it talks about Jesus, and then it adds this. It says, But as for monastic ascetism, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says this philosophy, this way of being where you reject and refuse anything that is not godly, anything that is material. Okay, and we see traces of this until today's Christianity. But as for monastic ascetism, we did not enjoin it upon them. We don't we did not order them to do this. They invented it themselves out of a desire for God's goodly acceptance. The intention behind it might have been good. They created this, they invented this for themselves. That we are going to reject everything that is not godly. Anything that is material is a no. Okay, but there's a reason why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not order it in the first place. And the verse tells you, gives you a hint when it says, but then they did not always observe it as ought to have been observed. And so they went to the other extreme. And that caused other issues. And so we granted the recompense unto such of them as had truly attained the faith, 
whereas many of them became corrupt. Okay? So this is to completely, you know, answer this question, answer this misconception about the idea of rejecting anything that is worldly and material. The conclusion from all of this. A lot of the issues, a lot of the misconceptions is that there are people who deny that there is a relationship of dependence between these two worlds, between this world and the afterlife. They think that, as we said, you just cease to live here, you die here, you appear in another world and you start a, a new life. No, that's not how it is. What happens in the afterlife is entirely 100% dependent on what you put in in this world, and over there you're only getting the rewards and the punishments for the things that you put in here. There's nothing else going on. You can't act there. You can't voluntarily choose anything there. Okay? So this is a first misconception that needs to be addressed. The second point is that the causality that happens in the afterlife is entirely based on actions. And this brings us back to the idea of the garden. Your actions, your intentions, what you put in, your faith, everything that you put in this world, these are the seeds that you're planting in your own garden. And all of this you get to harvest in the afterlife. So, as we said, favor does not equal happiness. If you have favors in this world, if you feel like you've been given all sorts of good things, it's not because of some sort of intrinsic value in yourself, because you deserve it. And therefore, this does not mean that you are going to get favors in the afterlife, but also not the opposite. If you are disfavored, it does not mean that you are going to be disfavored in the afterlife. And favor also does not mean punishment and hell in the afterlife, as those of the second misconception think. Okay? And so all of this, as we said, is because people are looking at the wrong things. All of these misconceptions, they're not looking at the main point of focus, which is where is God in your relationship? And do you understand that everything that you have to enjoy in this world has to be seen as a means to an end. It is not an, an end in itself. It's not the objective in itself. If you consider it to be the objective in itself, this is where you fall into some of these misconceptions. And a couple of verses to kind of wrap up this entire topic, to summarize it, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Say, O humankind, I am only a clear warner unto you, and as for those who believe and perform righteous deeds, there shall be forgiveness and a generous provision. But those who endeavor to thwart our signs, they shall be the inhabitants of hellfire. This is to summarize the entire topic. At the end of the day, can you enjoy or not anything in this world? Of course you can. Keeping in mind that there's a certain way you're supposed to use it, and that way has to fall within what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants you to do with it. Verily, whosoever comes unto his Lord guilty, Surely his shall be hell, wherein he neither dies nor lives. But whosoever comes unto him as a believer, having performed righteous deeds, theirs shall be the highest ranks, gardens of Eden with rivers running below, abiding therein. That is the reward or the recompense of one who purifies himself. I will stop here for the lecture part. And uh, maybe we just take a couple of minutes to talk about the beginning of the month of Rajab. So for the lecture part, let's stop. Wa sallallahu ala Sayyidina Muhammadin wa ala alihi al-tayyibin al-tahirin. I won't take more than five minutes. I'll be very quick. 
You all know, inshallah, that today marks the first day of the month of Rajab. And uh, we can certainly spend a lot of time talking about the benefits and the importance of this as a milestone, as a spiritual milestone. So I'm not going to go into a lot of detail here. I thought I would just mention a couple of things. Clearly, the month of Rajab, inshallah, we'll get an opportunity to talk about this over the next weeks. But if we don't, we can make an effort ourselves to look into these things. It has numerous religious events. So informing ourselves about those events. Today and tomorrow and the days after, we have the birth anniversary and then the death anniversary of Imam al-Hadi the birth anniversary of Imam al-Baqar then we have the birth anniversary of Imam Imam Ali alayhi salam and al-Mu'mineen. And then we have the famous event that basically marks the beginning of religion for us, which is al-Mab'ath, which is the beginning of the revelation of the Holy Quran to the Prophet in a way where he starts to uh, make that public. So inshallah, we, we spend a little bit of time understanding these events and their significance. And we also have the martyrdom of Imam al-Kadhim in the month of Rajab too. That's one. The second thing is the month of Rajab itself, even from its name, the Tarjib in Arabic, and Rajab basically means to make something great. Greatness, glorifying something and recognizing its greatness. That's one. In addition to that, there is also an... Uh, a qualifier that is often added in the narrations when they talk about the month of Rajab, they say Rajab al-Asab. Al-Asab, and we have the explanation in some other narrations that tell us it's like Sab, or Sabba is to pour something. It is because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in these narrations we are told, Allah pours His mercy during this month. Okay, so we're starting to understand that there's something very special going on here. Okay, so this is to be kept in mind as this is the general mood of this time. Keep that in mind. In addition to this, if you go through the narrations that talk about the month of Rajab, and we can certainly make an effort, I think, to look a little bit of al-Janan, other, other books that talk about the acts of worship, there is a lot of them. At the beginning of every month, you're supposed to pray a certain prayer, and it's described, it's not long, to provide security for the month. Pray it for the month of Rajab. You're supposed to provide, to give a bit of charity. This provides your protection, the protection of your family and loved ones. In the month, do that. Don't forget the reward for these acts and these holy months, beginning with Rajab and then Shaqran Ramadan, is multiplied. So at least try to do those things. In addition, there's clearly narrations that state that there's an added importance to certain specific acts, ritual acts. The major one that is mentioned a lot in the narrations is to fast in the month of Rajab. And we have a lot of them. And maybe throughout the month we can mention some of these narrations. I'll, I'll get you some of the narrations that talk about how much reward there is for fasting a single day in the month of Rajab, no matter where it is. And how much reward there is for two days, and three days, and four days, and five days. The Imams are specifically mentioning almost every number of dates possible days possible to fast, not all of them. There's a few that, that are skipped. I think they're making a point that every day counts and makes a huge difference at the end. 
To you, it doesn't make a big difference to fast one more day. But in your scale, in your afterlife, in your reward, it will make a huge difference. So if you can add one more day, add one more day. And if it's very difficult and you can only fast one day, then fast that one day. Okay, but fast something in this month. And the more, the better for you. That's one. There's a lot of prayers that can be performed in this month. So inshallah, you can look into some of those and try to do some of them. So inshallah, we may talk about some of that a little bit later. One thing, and inshallah, this is where I'm coming to my point. All of this was kind of the quick general introductions. This is just quick reminders for all of us. The point that I'm trying to make is, if you go back, even before Islam, they recognized the greatness of this month. They considered it, the Arabs, pre-Islamic Arabs, they considered the month of Rajab along with three other months, Al-Qa'dah, Al-Hijjah, and Muharram, they called them Al-Ashhur Al-Hurm. And when Islam came, it kept those months. It recognized the greatness of those months, the sacredness of those months. So this tells us, first, that there is something that was in place even before Islam that remained in place after. That's one. And two, that Islam wanted to keep it in place after it happened. That's one. And two, this is where we get into a little bit more details here. Where did this come from? And what did it mean that they consider this to be sacred? The Arabs, we are told, they would say that these are months in which you are not supposed to engage or start, at least start engaging in battle and, and warring and those kinds of activities. And we want to talk a little bit about the significance of that for us. What does that mean? That's one. Two, where does this come from? We have some narrations that explain to us some of the significance of some special days or times in the year. For the month of Rajab, one of the narrations that we have says that this was the day, the first of Rajab was the day when the ship, when the ark of Prophet Noah, Prophet Nuh settled after the flood, it settled on Al-Judi, it settled on the mountain. This was a time when those who were saved with Prophet Nuh came down from that ark. So this is seen by a lot of our scholars as representing a beginning. In our normal year, we say in the, today's calendar, Islamic calendar starts with the month of Muharram. Even though, you know, we say if it's based on Hijrah, truly, it should be the month of Rabi al-Awwal because that's when the Holy Prophet actually performed his migration. But as a matter of consensus, that's what it was agreed on, that the first month would be the month of Muharram. They say this is the external, normal calendar for the administration of social life. Fine. It's like there is a second calendar, a more spiritual calendar, that begins with the month of Rajab. This is the fresh beginning. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, if, it, if the greatness of this month is coming all the way down to us from the time of Prophet Nuh alayhi salam, as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to recognize this as an event, something important for humanity, and the, it had, something of it had stayed alive all the way down to the Arabs 
right before Islam was announced and they recognized its greatness, there is something in there that basically tells us this is the time for a spiritual renewal. After the flood, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants humanity to start given a new chance to start anew, to start fresh. So for us, what does that mean? This is your chance. This is the end of a previous life, the end of a previous cycle, the end of a previous phase. And this is when you start new. And you have to consider this as a timeline that you have so that you start preparing for, and we have talked about this repeatedly, you start preparing for what's to come. You have to start preparing for the month of Shaban and specifically the month of Ramadan. You can't enter into the month of Ramadan without preparation. It'll be too late. You can't prepare during the month of Ramadan. That will be a huge missed opportunity. You have to enter the month of Ramadan as clean as possible so that you fully benefit from what you can get out of it. And we say that the climax of the month of Ramadan is in the Ayah Al-Qadr. Okay, well, we have to prepare to, to fully benefit from them. And you are given this opportunity. You are given the month of Shaban, and you are given before that the month of Rajab. And the insistence that we see in the narrations that of the greatness of these months stems from that. That they are supposed to lead to something. But don't waste the opportunity to use them in that way. This is why I say if you go back to the narrations and you say that, you see that it's supposed to be marking a new beginning. A new beginning for humanity, a new beginning for us, each and every one of us. This is maybe why the Holy Prophet, when he talks about the month of Rajab, he says this is the month of Istighfar. One of the main acts of worship in the month of Rajab is Istighfar. Asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to forgive us. Which is what? Which is starting in you. This is your fresh start. And istighfar, of course, is not just saying the words. It's making sure that you can't do istighfar while still sinning. And you can't do istighfar while the effects of the sins are still alive and still present. You have to get rid of those and clean up and clean up internally and bow to yourself. You're not going back. You will do whatever you can not to go back to those sins. And then the words mean something. But this is your chance. When the Holy Prophet says, this is the month of istighfar, the istighfar is probably not going to have the same effect on you if it's performed in this month as if it's as opposed to being performed at another month outside of these three months. So this is your chance. That's one. The second point, and inshallah this is again in preparation. So this is the first one in preparation to the month of Ramadan. Starting a new and preparing ourselves internally, cleaning ourselves through istighfar in the month of Rajab. That's one. The second point is that if the Arabs of Jahiliya, the Arabs, pre-Islamic Arabs, considered the month of Rajab to be so sacred without having Islam, without the benefit of Islam, that it would be inappropriate during this time to engage in battle and in war. And we're not saying that they always respected their own teachings. They did not. In a lot of cases, they broke their own rules, and then they changed the, the, the sacred months because they felt like attacking and so on and so forth. And that's part of why Islam has to be revealed, to bring things back to the way they're supposed to be. But at least in spirit, and the good ones among them, they respected these months enough that they would not engage in battle. 
And this speaks to our own internal faculties. When you reach the month of Ramadan, and inshallah we may talk about this, one of the most important objectives of the month of Ramadan is that you learn to discipline yourself internally. The fact that you discipline yourself from not eating and not drinking whenever your body wants you to, it's supposed to be an indication of something even greater. And this is something you find in every spiritual tradition in the world. The need for spiritual discipline. So that something like anger does not overtake you. You are in possession, in full control, in full command of your states. When you see that the month tells you you are not supposed to be in a state where you are ready to engage in battle. So you have to be in the opposite state. This is a state we may refer to it, for instance, as a state of compassion or a state of mercy. So that battling does not even cross your mind. In our day-to-day lives, alhamdulillah, we don't have battles to deal with, but we have different types of battles. We have psychological battles, spiritual battles. Don't let anger overtake you. Don't be in a contesting, argumentative, combative spirit during this month. Control yourself, control your feelings, control your anger. This is a preparation to the month of Ramadan, and we have clear narrations that say one of the greatest acts of worship in the month of Ramadan is for someone to leave the month having gained control over their anger, control over their feelings. We all feel things. We all have moments where we get angry, we get frustrated, we say something and then we regret, we do something and then we regret. This is a 30-day period where you have to be more aware and work on this. This is part of the sacredness that the Arabs pre-Islamically recognized. This is the spirit of this month. So we have to start working on this so that inshallah we continue practicing this during the month of Rajab and in Shaban, so that in the month of Ramadan, this becomes almost a second nature. And then when we leave, we say at least there's something gained, there's something transformed within us. And I assure you this is something that will change your lives. If you have control over your feelings, if you have discipline over which feeling is appropriate now and which one is not, that's it. That means that your reason is in control, not your feelings. So I'll stop here. Wa sallallahu ala Sayyidina Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sallam.